Good morning, everybody. Thanks for um, waiting a few extra minutes. We were running late, and it's raining here in Washington, so obviously can't do anything uh, right on time. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, a Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS, and we are delighted to have Dave Turk back. I was just noticing that Dave uh, is now head of the Strategic Initiatives Office at IEA, so maybe he'll tell us a little bit about that because uh, I actually didn't know that till I saw it on his slides. Uh, and uh, it's a new title for him. Uh, he had at least two hats last time he was here presenting, uh, so I think he's running a bunch of uh, really important things at the IEA. Um, so Dave is not a stranger to many of you in the audience. I can see some uh, friends who've worked with him uh, in the past. Uh, had some really important roles uh, in the White House, at DOE, on the Hill, um, doing energy policy making over the last number of years, uh, and has left us to be in Paris for a while helping out Fatih and the IEA team. Um, he's going to talk today about the future of petrochemicals. I was really pleased to see uh, the IEA um, um, send around via Twitter uh, that really great clip from The Graduate uh, where Dustin Hoffman is assured that the future is in plastics. Well, uh, Dave is going to tell us whether or not the future is in fact in petrochemicals this morning. So uh, without further ado, we'll uh, let Dave take the stage and uh, then have a bit of a discussion. So welcome. Well, first of all, let me say thanks to Sarah and Ian and the full CIS, CSIS team for uh, having me here today and for uh, such a terrific relationship we have between the IEA and CSIS for, uh, for many, many years. It's certainly something that Fatih Biral, my executive director, and the rest of us at IEA very much, uh, very much, uh, very much appreciate. So what I'm going to do with the presentation today is uh, really break it down into three parts. First, um, looking at petrochemicals, recent trends. Um, what are they? Uh, what are the numbers today, just to give a snapshot? Now, for some of you, this may be a bit rudimentary. Some people are obviously experts in this area. Uh, but what we found is there's a lack of appreciation of petrochemicals in part because of their complexity from a lot of otherwise uh, quite smart people in the energy space. And so we'll spend a little bit of time just breaking uh, down what they are, what the numbers are. Secondly, we'll, uh, we'll look at a scenario we call our reference technology scenario, which is really where petrochemicals going into the future, just under current trends, current assumptions, uh, et cetera. Um, some eye-opening numbers uh, in there, we think, um, but some also uh, some interesting analysis, uh, geographically speaking, et cetera. And then the third piece is uh, looking at some numbers of a different scenario, what we call our clean technology scenario, um, which is trying to figure out well, what could we do more of from a policymaking side of things, from a market design side of things, to get the full advantage from petrochemicals, plastics, fertilizers, but also to reduce the environmental uh, toll, the sustainability toll that a lot of these uh, chemicals are having uh, and will have into the future. But before doing that, let me just give you a, a couple slides on the uh, IEA itself. Now, hopefully some of you, and I know some of you are very familiar with the IEA, um, some of you may be a little less familiar, just two things real quick here. First is the IEA is really changing into, especially over the last couple of years under Fatih Burel, to be a real global agency, a global family. So you see here our member countries. These are our member countries, many of whom have been original member countries for 40 plus years. But what we also have are our association countries. These are our uh, partners around the world, big emerging economies in particular. You see China, you see India, Brazil, Indonesia. 
These are now part of the IEA family and uh, very much strengthening our relationship uh, with these countries as well. And then when you look at our global data coverage, some of our technology work, it literally spans um, just about every country of the world. So we call this now the IEA global family. Second thing is we are an all of energy, all of technologies uh, agency, including and increasingly in the clean energy transition space. So really trying to help countries help companies think through their own transitions. Where do they want to go uh, into the future and how can IEA data analysis and solutions, real world solution uh, opportunities uh, help? So that's just the IEA plug on the front end. Um, this future of petrochemicals uh, report fits into a uh, broader uh, series. This is the third in a series so far. We'll have more of these that we call uh, exploring key blind spots. That is those areas in global energy that from our perspective are um, frankly not getting as much attention as they should be given, getting given their, uh, their importance in the energy space now and especially looking forward into the future. So you see the three covers there, uh, the future of trucks uh, we did last year, the future of cooling, just a couple numbers from that about why that's a blind spot and not getting enough attention. I was just in Indonesia recently. Indonesia right now has about 10% penetration of air conditioners in the residential uh, space right now. For those who've been in Indonesia at various points in the year, um, that number will increase significantly uh, as the middle class uh, purchasing power emerges. That is a good thing. Having more air conditioning is a good thing. But what we see in terms of future trends is uh, overall globaling, a tripling of additional energy demand just from air conditioning to 2050. Now, um, that's the amount of electricity right now that India and China consume just going to air conditioning into the future to 2050. So again, just showing you why uh, we consider that a blind spot or an area that should be focused on. Similarly for petrochemicals and uh, the whole presentation today is about why that should be appreciated, uh, should be appreciated more. So let's get right into it. Again, first part here is petrochemicals today. So let's just look at uh, where petrochemicals are in the world around us. Uh, they are ubiquitous, probably more so than a lot of people, uh, a lot of people appreciate. First of all is just home and office. Uh, obviously we're in an office environment here. You can look around the room and think about all the petrochemicals that are going in. Uh, insulation, plastic pipes, toiletries uh, in your home in the morning, medical supplies, textiles, electronics. Uh, one data point there just to show the volume of petrochemicals and plastics in particular today. It's estimated that we uh, consume, we go through about a million um, plastic bottles every minute in the world right now. So again, just to give you a sense of the scale of what we're talking about in terms of petrochemicals in that instance, uh, plastics in particular. Secondly is uh, food and drink, especially agriculture. Uh, packaging and very important uh, fertilizer. Huge amounts of petrochemicals go into fertilizer in particular. One nugget there is 50% uh, of today's world uh, food, food supply um, uses synthetic uh, nitrogen. The, um, we'll hopefully get the, well, I guess they're up there. So as long as they're up there, they're good. The slides just cut out right here. 50% um, of global food production uses synthetic nitrogen, the vast majority of that coming um, from petrochemicals from oil and gas uh, in particular. So again, just showing you the volume and the importance of petrochemicals in, in today's world. Third is on the move. A lot of our transportation uh, depends on petrochemicals in one way or another. You see tires there. The more UK spelling of tires, I'm still getting used to uh, the different spellings now being... <coughs> 
now being in the, uh, the, the, the kind of multilateral space where we tend to use UK spellings a little bit more than American spellings, but tires, whether you spell it with a Y or an I. One nugget there is about uh, seven kilograms of oil is used for every average size tire. So again, giving you a sense of how important petrochemicals are on that part of the transport space, um, luggage, uh, luggage as well on that front. And then fourth, uh, petrochemicals use uh, in energy supply. And very importantly, um, and increasingly, energy supply um, in the uh, um, more emerging, newer, cleaner kinds of technologies. So solar PV, wind, um, all of these technologies use plastics to one extent, one extent or another. And we'll only see that going further in terms of um, plastics being a helpful place uh, in the clean energy transitions um, part as well. So obviously um, uh, ubiquitous, far-reaching, and that will only increase uh, going forward. So let's look a little historically. This is a chart showing uh, growth for selected bulk materials compared against GDP. So GDP is the dark blue line there that you see in front of you. You see cement having outperformed, if you will, or done more than GDP. Um, you see aluminum right around GDP and cement. Uh, actually, cement was high. Steel is a little bit less. Uh, less so. So let's look at the plastic number on that just to see by comparison. So what you see is over the last 45 years, we've increased, the future was in plastics, the future is in plastics, um, according to the graduate back in, uh, back in the day. What you see is actually about a tenfold increase since 1970, and certainly far outpacing GDP and far outpacing, if you will, a lot of these other uh, bulk materials. And what you see is plastics, given its versatility, actually um, finding itself into a variety of other niches that was previously that were previously performed, whether by steel, aluminum, um, cement, uh, et cetera, et cetera, along those lines. So let's, uh, yeah, Bill, I don't mind stopping at any point if anybody has any questions. Yep. value of plastic? So I think it's tons in this instance. It's an index here, um, but I think it's a volume, um, a volume index. Thanks. I can look it up uh, once I get a chance. I should say the, the report that Sarah mentioned um, and I showed you the cover of is now fully downloadable, free. It was launched uh, just a few days ago um, by Fatih, actually earlier this week by Fatih at an oil and gas uh, conference, oil and money conference in, uh, in London. So um, all the breakdowns and, and details can be in there. But if other people have questions along the way, I'm happy to, if that's useful for folks. Yeah, just wait for the mic. Okay. All right, so um, just looking at, uh, and I'll show you some real numbers in terms of our modeling going forward, but just to give you a sense of the growth potential through one dynamic. So this is looking at per capita demand for major plastics in 2015. You see Korea on the high end, Canada, Saudi Arabia, no surprise that uh, more developed countries use more plastics per capita. And then you get to the point of India, Africa, on the other end of the spectrum, showing quite uh, much lower, in fact, 20 times lower per capita um, plastic usage. Now, one could think, especially as the purchasing power in these countries increases, the demand for a variety of consumer goods, a variety of transportation options, et cetera, et cetera, you could see that being a major source, and we, in fact, do see that in our scenario work being a major source of plastics in particular uh, growth going forward. Similar kind of uh, um, uh, bar chart can be shown on the fertilizer side, which plastics and fertilizers are the two main uses of petrochemicals. Uh, a little less stark, about 10 times, not 20 times on the fertilizer, uh, fertilizer side, of, side of things. 
So let's look at uh, uh, plastics and uh, or petrochemicals more generally in oil and gas demand. Uh, these are the numbers currently on the primary oil side of things and then the primary uh, gas demand side of things, 2017 numbers. What you see, of course, on the oil side, no surprise, transport, 56% is the key driver uh, in demand right now. Plastics, importantly, at 14%, which is quite significant, especially comparing to some of the other categories. And then on the gas side of things, about 8% uh, along those lines. We'll see some numbers going forward about how that uh, number changes, and especially on oil, increases significantly. Now, before shifting over into some of this analysis going forward, why is it that uh, petrochemicals and plastics and fertilizers fly under the radar um, screen? Why is it an area that um, isn't as fully appreciated given some of the numbers, given some of the ubiquity that we just, uh, we just looked at? One of the answers to that is really the feedstock issue. So uh, plastics fertilizers use energy in two ways. One is just like any other sector would use it, um, thermal energy, other ways to, to move things along. But the second way is feedstocks, so oil and gas, various types of products. You see a Sankey diagram in front of you. A lot of different types of oil and gas, <coughs> coal, et cetera, along with a bunch of secondary reactants, all mixing together in a variety of quite complicated ways, and then forming uh, fertilizers, plastics, fibers, rubbers, other kinds of products as well. This is actually a simplified version of what could be shown in terms of the overall complexity of this. So one of the answers to why uh, um, um, uh, plastics, fertilizers, petrochemicals more generally don't get the attention they deserve given the major role they play in oil and gas demand, given the role they play more generally in our society, is the complexity. Yeah. question is, where do you put natural gas liquids on the chart? So in this instance, I think the, uh, um, I think it fits in with the gas piece of it, um, and then it's broken up in a variety of different ways feeding into the different products. Yeah, yeah. All right, um, let's just, uh, all right, so let's look at um, production uh, around the world. Um, it varies from uh, region to region. This is looking at primary chemicals. Uh, HVCs are high-value chemicals, mainly used for plastics, ammonia for fertilizers, and then methanol, the light blue, for diverse products. What you see is the various regions around the world. There are four big um, regions um, led by Asia, Middle East, Europe, and the U.S., a little less contribution from other places, but you see different kinds of uh, materials, HVCs, um, being very important in the U.S., over 50 U.S. and North America more generally, Asia a little bit more balanced on that end. If you look at the feedstocks, where these are actually coming from, uh, oil broken up into the three different categories, you see different variations in there. The one that stands out from the North America perspective is the ethane side of it from the oil um, side of the spectrum, but again, different um, different places um, yielding both different use of primary chemicals but also different uh, feedstocks. And these really are the four big regions, if you will, going forward. And we'll look at some numbers about how these numbers, uh, how these change, where are the growth opportunities for different regions, uh, et cetera, in a few minutes here. And this is owing in part, um, in no small part, to regional cost advantages, right? No surprise that different regions would have different um, opportunities going forward in terms of, uh, of, of costs of petrochemicals. This is a <clears throat> quite simplified levelized cost of petrochemicals in 2017, trying to compare 
um, apples to apples as much as possible uh, in these kinds of uh, in these kinds of ways. One thing we're also seeing increasingly uh, in the present is a variety of oil companies looking to strengthen li links with uh, petrochemicals to look to um, see this as a major source of funding going forward. This is just a graph showing gasoline, diesel, and naphtha. Um, what you see here, of course, is the uh, uh, checkered um, boxes or rectangles there for gasoline and diesel. That represents the tax, um, which eats up a lot of the potential revenue for some of those sources. You don't have some of those same dynamics uh, with some of the use of petrochemicals in ways that, again, for integrated refiners in particular, can offer higher margins, uh, a good source of income going forward. And we see that uh, in a variety of places around the world. The place that, of course, gets a lot of focus in the U.S. is in the Gulf area where you have a lot of that petrochemical capacity already, that refining capacity, and there's some uh, quite interesting things going on uh, in that space for, for a whole number of reasons. So let's, look, uh, let's just look now at the current trajectory. So this is what I mentioned before, our reference technology scenario, <coughs> our RTS. Uh, this is the trajectory we're currently on, just looking at um, for those who are familiar with the WIO series, the, uh, um, similar to what would be the uh, new policy scenario. So this is current levels of ambition baked in uh, in a variety of ways, just looking at future trends from that, uh, from that perspective. <coughs> so here's the trajectory we look at uh, going forward. Uh, key thermoplastics broken up into a variety of subcategories on that front. The kind of bottom line number is we do continue to see strong growth, a doubling, an increase, to another doubling from 2010 to 2050 time, uh, time period. And we also see per capita uh, increases significantly in the RTS, the reference technology scenario. We actually did a high demand variant as well in which you could continue to see that uh, increase uh, going forward uh, depending on your various assumptions about the saturation and how much per capita uh, could increase uh, could increase even going forward into the into the out years here into 2040 2050 time period but very very strong growth of plastics and petrochemicals more generally going forward this may be a, a clearer way to look at that in terms of oil demand growth in particular so here's our growth um, demand 9.6 uh, million barrels per day and let's look at the various components of that, what's making up that growth uh, in this scenario, this reference scenario going to, to just 2030 in this instance. So shipping, passenger vehicles, aviation, road freight, and then petrochemicals uh, providing uh, a full third of that growth to 2030. If you extended this graph out and looked to 2050, it'd be nearly half. So significant driver uh, and becoming the uh, dominant driver of oil demand growth uh, going forward from the petrochemicals, uh, petrochemical side of things. Now here's uh, some numbers broken up uh, regionally. Um, um, you can see the North America, Europe, Middle East, Asia Pacific are the largest numbers. What you see here is a couple things. One, <coughs> especially looking between the first two bars, that's the 2017 where we're at currently looking to 2030. You see significant amounts of increase uh, in a couple places. North America sees some increase. I'll disaggregate that a little bit more for you. Middle East sees some increases. And then Asia Pacific, both in terms of the current volume, but then the volume to 2030 and especially 2050, uh, you just see that bar being huge compared to some of the other bars. And so shows the, uh, 
the incredibly large amounts coming from the Asia-Pacific uh, Asia side of things, uh, including in the longer-term uh, longer side. So let's just look a little bit uh, North America feedstock demand a little bit more in detail. This will obviously be more meaningful for those who, uh, who have some, <coughs> some greater appreciation understanding. On the high-value chemical side of things, you see the North America demand is really on the ethane side of things. Um, significantly to 2030 and even 2050. And then you see natural gas uh, being a prime driver on ammonia and then methanol uh, in particular. Different regions would have different breakdowns uh, of this as well. Uh, Europe and Asia Pacific, uh, especially China, is a little bit more coal uh, dominated and then the naphtha side of things uh, as well. So that's the reference uh, scenario. That's where we're currently headed under current levels of ambition, current policy uh, approaches, et cetera, et cetera. So let me just show you a few slides now from uh, what we call our clean uh, technology scenario. So it's a different scenario. Instead of just taking current trends and extrapolating and looking at to where those go into the future, the clean technology scenario uh, really tries to uh, drive the model in ways that uh, reduce a variety of, uh, of, uh, um, of different sustainability challenges. Uh, in particular, we'll look at air pollution, we'll look at climate impacts, and then we'll look at water pollution as well, which gets a lot of attention uh, in, this, uh, in this area in particular. So this is just where we're at right now, looking at um, CO2 emissions in a snapshot. One thing to note here um, is even though chemicals is the largest of the industrial sectors in terms of global final energy demand, you see chemicals there on the very far left, iron and steel, less so, cement, et cetera. Um, because of the feedstock issue, because a lot of these um, um, petrochemicals are being locked into products that will last to varying degrees, some very uh, significant amounts of time. The chemicals represented by the uh, red dots there, direct CO2 emissions, is actually the third highest sector. So iron and steel and cement is higher from a CO2 footprint even though chemicals is highest from a final energy demand perspective. So just to give you a little bit of a snap, uh, a snapshot on where we're at uh, currently on the environmental toll, at least on that aspect. So this is what uh, um, the kind of uh, challenges, the pollutants coming from the, uh, again, the reference technology scenario. So this is all an index, so it's a little easier to compare apples to apples between the three. Water pollutants is that dotted line um, going up significantly from 100 to 200, so that's about a doubling of the pollutants, if you will, from the um, primary chemical production going forward into that 2050 time period. You see the carbon dioxide emission significantly increase, um, although start to flatten out a little bit as you get closer to 2050. And then you see air pollutants actually re being reduced even in the reference technology scenario for, uh, for a number of reasons. But that's the reference technology scenario. Now let me just show you the numbers in dark here, the non-dotted thicker lines. This is our clean technology scenario. So this is the scenario, and I should say too, this uses existing technologies, it's cost effective, we'll get to that in a, in a minute, but this requires a significant amount of policy, a significant amount of market design to try to really take advantage of these opportunities for enhanced sustainability. So what you see here is air pollutants and water pollutants um, very much significantly reduced, trying almost to get to the, to get to the zero perspective. 
it's actually an 85% reduction on the air pollution side and 90% reduction on the water pollution side in this CTS, this clean technology scenario. And even the carbon dioxide, that's the dark blue, um, a decrease of about 45% reduction. So again, significant. We're not just doing this scenario and nibbling around the margins. This is a, a pretty significant sustainability uh, scenario going forward. Now let's look at some of these a little bit more in detail. Let's start with the plastic issue, um, the plastic pollution issue, which does get a lot of attention these days, sometimes a little bit out of perspective. Um, but let's look at the actual numbers of uh, what's possible here. <coughs> what you see in front of you are uh, secondary plastic production, so uh, compared to primary plastic production. So the primary plastic production side of things um, is uh, is showing up there in terms of um, yeah. What's the difference between secondary plastics and plastics that you have in the prior charts or primary chemicals? So, in this instance, the uh, secondary plastic is the amount being recycled and brought in that way. So it's not using yeah. That makes sense. So um, what you see here is uh, a number uh, a number of things you see huge amounts of um, increases on the recycling side of things with the CTS versus the RTS. So the clean technology scenario is the purple um, bar much higher in 2030 and especially much higher in 2050 um, compared to those light blue which are the RTS in 2030 and 2050. So what we see here in the CTS is a significant amount, much higher amount of uh, recycling going on um, the global collection rate here I'll show you in red with uh, a bit of a bar, and you see a significant amount of primary chemical savings. So the more you recycle and um, put into secondary plastic production, the less you have to use um, from a primary uh, chemical perspective. Now this is the plastic waste leakage um, into the ocean, so the ocean-bound plastic uh, leakage that gets a lot of attention, these uh, big areas in the Pacific in particular <laughs> that are accumulating all of this plastic, some in larger um, amounts, but also the microplastics that are finding their way into fish and finding their way into the, into the food chain um, in significant uh, amounts of number. So what you see here is comparing the RTS reference case annual leakage. Those are the dotted boxes, rectangles that you see increasing going forward. Um, starting at a significant amount already, but um, increasing um, significantly amount going forward. And then the CTS is the dark rectangles towards the very bottom and really aggressively being pushed to try to have less and less annually going into the oceans. Um, if you look at the cumulative leakage, that is how much is in the oceans, you see the RTS cumulative leakage, no surprise that those numbers would keep increasing if you keep increasing the amounts you're putting into the oceans. Um, the CTS cumulative leakage is significantly, uh, significantly lower there to the point of uh, being halved from that cumulative level on the, uh, on the uh, uh, reference case uh, scenario uh, going forward. So this is, again, a very aggressive plastics recycling program driving things down. What you see here is still a significant amount of cumulative leakage, even with this aggressive recycling, even under this aggressive um, scenario. One of the solutions that's been looked at is to try to have active programs to remove some of those plastics from a variety of places in the oceans or certainly even before they, uh, before they get there. So let's look at uh, CO2 emissions. Um, these are the differences between the, again, the reference case scenario, CO2 emissions increasing, not increasing as much as other 
um, sectors, again, in, in part because of the feedstock issue, but increasing in significant amounts. And then you see the CTS there, which is really driving down the energy-related emissions. Again, that's a significant part of the CO2 profile is really the uh, energy-related emissions, those amounts of energy used to drive different um, um, catalytic uh, chemical reactions, et cetera. The process emissions starting quite a bit less, um, decreasing um, less, but the real emissions benefits you get is from the energy-related emissions side of things. And you see the cumulative amounts and the CTS uh, quite significant. Again, a 45% reduction in the CTS uh, with energy-related emissions declining, uh, declining and taking care of the significant part of it. So this now looks at, um, well, how do you get there? So assuming you want to get some of these benefits, you want to get the 45% reduction on the CO2 side, you want to get the 90% reduction on the plastic leakage side of things. Um, what are the different policy mechanisms? What are the ways cost-effectively to actually make those reductions? A couple things are striking in this uh, chart. We break it up into five different categories. One is the largest is CCUS. I'll have a slide in particular that dives into that, but that ends up being um, very much, and you see here over a third of the cost-effective opportunities to reduce the CO2 footprint from the petrochemicals in industry. Secondly is uh, feedstock shifts, especially from coal to natural gas. Now China is the main country right now using coal as a feedstock into the petrochemical side of things, a full quarter of the uh, opportunity space uh, in terms of reducing CO2 footprint just from the coal to natural gas feedstock shift. Um, equally, 25% from the energy efficiency side. That's no surprise for those who focus on energy efficiency. It ends up driving a large part of our various scenarios across different technologies, across different industries. Um, it's interesting that the plastics recycling piece, um, while important and again very much an aggressive uh, recycling regime in this particular scenario, is only responsible for 9% of the reduction uh, of CO2 emissions. So lots of reasons to do the recycling, um, including sustainability, but it's not going to be the primary driver to really uh, clean up the CO2 footprint uh, for sure from, uh, from this part of thing. And alternative feedstocks at 6%. Now, a lot of different assumptions about what kinds of alternative feedstocks will be available at what price. There is some R&D going into this development. It's one of the more difficult areas to, uh, to actually model to figure out what's going to happen uh, into the future. But as we look at it, uh, much more cost-effective solutions, certainly in that time period of 2050 from CCUS, from recycling, uh, et cetera, along those lines. So let's look now at uh, CCS. What CCS um, in the petrochemical side of things um, really changes from using CCS, and there's a significant amount of CCU, if you will, uh, going on right now. Carbon uh, um, capture for utilization, you see that in the uh, light blue bar there going forward. It's actually not that much different from RTS to CTS. Those numbers are already significant. Those numbers are um, uh, going up to a certain extent. The real difference here is the CCUS, uh, the storage piece of the equation here. That's where you get your significant carbon reductions is actually storing, uh, especially some of those process energy, uh, energy um, generated along those lines. So again, CCS doing a significant amount, and you see the dark um, rectangles there, the capture for storage. You see very little of that in the reference technology scenario, no surprise, because that costs extra money, unless you have a carbon price or other mechanism to drive that, you're just not going to see a whole lot of it. Whereas on the CTS, where you do drive, um, do drive policies in a significant way, you see a significantly uh, higher number on that front.
All right, so um, how much more does the CTS, the um, clean technology scenario, cost from the reference technology scenario? Now, one thing that's interesting is it actually costs less. Now, it requires a whole um, slew of policies. I'll get to that in a minute, a whole slew of market designs. Um, but because of the savings you get from recycling, and especially from coal to gas feedstock, and you see that for ammonia, methanol, and HVCs on the chart in front of you, it actually means that the CTS is less capital intensive, about 1.5 trillion, compared to the RTS, which is about 1.7 um, trillion. So about 200 million saved, if you will, um, through the CTS versus the RTS. Now, that's just because there's theoretical cost savings doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's a variety of different policies and mechanisms to have the incentive structure for that to, uh, to actually come to fruition. Couple last words just looking at CTS and oil demand. So we looked at the numbers previously about um, the third going to 2030, the oil demand growth being driven um, by petrochemicals um, and the full half or 50% going forward. So here's what that looks like um, in terms of percentage terms from the, uh, the RTS going forward. This is looking at oil demand. Increases to about 16%. So 16% in 2050 of overall oil demand. This isn't just growth. This is overall oil demand um, will come from uh, petrochemicals. What happens in the CTS is because of um, some of the um, constraints, some of the mechanisms, uh, carbon um, pricing, et cetera, um, what you actually see is a greater reduction in other parts of oil demand, especially in transport, compared to um, a continued increase, and you see the blue bar continuing to increase on oil demand from the um, petrochemical side of things, to the point where instead of just 16% under the reference case by 2050 coming um, of oil demand coming from petrochemicals, you see it increase to 26%. So it's less oil demand, but a greater percentage under that clean technology, uh, clean technology scenario. Let me just show you one graph to uh, make that um, point a little bit more apparent from the passenger transport side of things. So what you see here are 2017 numbers for four different uh, countries or regions, U.S., European Union, China, and India. Um, the green is the oil demand for road transport, road passenger transport, huge in the U.S., huge in European Union, uh, pretty significant in China, India. And then you see the oil demand for plastics consumption is the red there comparably. Now, this is what it looks like in the CTS. So you get a significant amount uh, of additional electric vehicles coming in uh, under the CTS, hundreds of millions of electric vehicles, other ways that reduce the oil demand for road passenger transport. You see the significant reduction on the US, European Union, et cetera. Whereas um, you see it increases um, and staying quite uh, stable for the US and European Union, China and India increasing significantly to the point where uh, by 2050 the per capita oil demand overtakes uh, road transport in all of these regions in terms of, again, the oil demand uh, under this more clean uh, clean technology scenario. So let me conclude with just a, uh, two slides. As we do in a lot of reports, well, it's good to know that there's this scenario theoretically out there. How would you actually take advantage of it if you were a government or a company? Um, what are the recommendations to actually get you from that reference case to that clean technology scenario? So we'll break this up into a series of um, five each, five for production and then five for the use and consumption. 
Uh, first, no surprise, stimulate that investment in R&D. If you don't do the investment in R&D about the sustainable chemical production routes, whether alternative feedstocks or other R&D that can be done, you're not going to have those technological options, uh, options going forward. Secondly, establishing extending plant-level benchmarking schemes for energy performance. Again, incenting the adoption through fiscal uh, incentives, really trying to drive the market in ways that you, uh, that you want. Uh, efforts to reduce CO2 emissions, the CTS very much is part of a broader series of measures to really, um, to really drive the CO2 emissions. <coughs> Air quality standards can certainly be helpful on this side. Those for industry can help be part of the solution going forward. And then fuel and feedstock prices should reflect actual market value. If you want the incentive structures uh, right to really drive um, that, you have to have the fuel and feedstock prices uh, reflecting actual market value. We've obviously had a lot of efforts on the uh, subsidization of fossil fuels, a lot of discussion about that, a lot of challenge. Some countries have made progress in recent years. Some countries are um, losing some of that progress uh, because of the high oil price uh, recently in particular. Second set of five uh, recommendations, this is on use and disposal of chemical products. Uh, it is uh, incredibly helpful to reduce the reliance on single-use plastics. That's what's getting a lot of attention these days. The uh, straws, the uh, bags, et cetera, that can certainly be a uh, uh, part of the solution. But again, very importantly, only a part of the solution. It really requires a much more comprehensive, thoughtful uh, regime to get at the full sustainability benefits improving waste management practices, consumer awareness, design products with disposal in mind. Don't just design your product for that immediate consumer experience, but what is it, where's that product going uh, after that? Um, and then looking at some different mechanisms to have producer responsibility. So if producers are putting out a certain amount of products out there, what's the right incentive structure to make sure that those get recycled, those get reused um, in ways that uh, are appropriate for the overall system, not just that, uh, that producer. So just a few conclusions here. Um, petrochemicals really are deeply embedded in our economy's everyday lives. They also play, as I said, a role in many clean energy technologies today. This will only increase under any scenario that you could look at in a realistic world uh, going forward into the next several decade period of time. Petrochemicals are the largest driver of global oil demand, a third of that growth to 2030, nearly half to 2050. Frankly, even a larger percentage in a clean technology scenario in a world that's trying to maximize more sustainability uh, benefits. U.S., China, and the Middle East in particular, leading growth in petrochemicals um, with some interesting near-term opportunities in the U.S. Uh, in particular. Production use and disposal of chemicals take an environmental toll. They do have a significant environmental footprint right now, and that will increase into the future. Uh, but there are a variety, as we talked about, achievable cost-effective steps, uh, steps that can be taken. And uh, just one last plug for the IA Blind Spots series. We did trucks. We did air conditioners. Um, we actually have some um, focus on modern bioenergy that's now out, part of our renewables, uh, annual renewables report, and more to come looking at rail, looking at a variety of other areas that we think are blind spots, aren't getting as much attention uh, as they should give for a whole variety of reasons uh, going forward. But uh, thanks again for having me here, Sarah and Ian and the full CSIS team. Uh, thank you for all coming out on a rainy day. I hope the rain has stopped. 
um, and spending a little bit of time and uh, more than happy to certainly answer questions and more than happy to continue our collaboration from the IEA side of things with, uh, with a variety of, you, uh, variety of you going forward. So thanks. Thanks, Dave. No, I think you did bring out the nice weather, so it's uh, much better out now than, than when everybody arrived. Um, okay, so first off, congratulations. I think the Blind Spot series is really important. Uh, I think the way in which that you guys have applied frameworks for thinking about issues that people fundamentally don't understand or don't appreciate enough in our sort of normal uh, energy market or policy dialogues has been really important. I thought the air conditioning cooling one was uh, particularly insightful, and this one is as well. Um, so a couple of things I wanted to ask about first. Um, going back to the beginning of your presentation, you talk about the commercial um, strategy, if you will, you didn't, I don't think you used those terms, but sort of the attractiveness of petrochemicals to oil and gas company strategy. And I think that that's an interesting that's an interesting point. It's certainly something that we've observed that as you know, companies are looking out into the world and looking at the future of oil demand and all of the both you know, potential positive and negative uh, um, uncertainties out there about the trajectory of that demand, petrochemicals has really sort of turned out to be one of those things where they can create more value added. They feel like it gives them sort of a deeper um, connection into some of the consuming countries where they, you know, uh, uh, suppliers of oil would like to participate in those markets. But what I find interesting is, is if you look at what you've just presented, that calls that into question a little bit, right? So. So the idea is that petrochemicals are going to be a larger share, but if we actually go about trying to apply all the sustainable criteria to petrochemicals that we do to the way that we consume energy, we're actually going to be reducing demand for those products overall. At the same time, when we talk to companies, we find them wanting to embed petrochemicals and plastics into more portions of the built environment. So not using cement and steel as much, but being able to use plastics and other petrochemicals for more and more things. Can you talk a little bit about, as you guys were engaging with companies, where you see the kind of outlay that you've looked at here for petrochemicals and, and, and how that's factoring into some of their commercial strategy? No, thanks. Uh, thank, thanks, Sarah. Obviously, different companies, different perspectives. Some. Um, have a, a greater or lesser appreciation depending on what their particular business model um, is. So a couple thoughts on this. One, and uh, we, we try never to present our scenarios as this is how things are definitely going to play out. Like the world is too complicated to do that. The scenarios are less forecasts and more models of what the world could look at, lenses in which to view uh, whether certain decisions make sense from a business perspective uh, or not on that side of things. Certainly the chart, which if I were an oil and gas um, company or others in this space, um, that I think is uh, maybe the most compelling is that historic chart with that tenfold increase um, since 1970 over this 45, 47 plus um, year period of time. Huge increase and what we've seen is um, the plastics and chemicals industry more generally has a huge amount of flexibility for, as you just mentioned, new products, new um, solutions. We've got uh, 3D and additive manufacturing coming, which um, opens up all sorts of different business models that aren't based on a manufacturing facility in one big location and shipping products, but a much more distributed manufacturing kind of opportunity space um, going, going forward on that side. 
So you could certainly um, envision a variety on the plastic side, a variety of different applications in different kinds, um, different kinds of ways, uh, ways as well. So um, that um, I think is a pretty significant uh, data point, that historic data point and what the trends have been in, in, in the past. I think it's actually useful to look both at the RTS, the reference case, and then the clean technology case. In both of those instances, um, you still see a significant amount of increases on the oil demand side, um, certainly overall, and even more a percentage increase um, from oil demand going into petrochemicals in the clean technology sector. So if I was a company and I was looking at that, that would mean that um, with any variation of a future world in which the world either gets its act together on the Paris Agreement or other goals, whether they're air pollution, climate goals, or other goals, the oil demand growth still looks very solid um, even in that clean scenario and maybe even more solid in that clean scenario compared to uh, transport fuels or other kinds of things if you were thinking of it, uh, thinking of it from that perspective, uh, that perspective as well. Um, third thing, and this is going to be interesting to see, is uh, what is the public reaction to the various campaigns going on right now, single-use plastics, the straws and Starbucks, other kinds of things as well. And certainly if I were thinking from a oil and uh, a, a chemical producer, a plastics producer, trying to get ahead of that curve, trying to figure out um, ways um, that you could encourage recycling, uh, reduce single use, because there's so many other opportunities out there. You don't want to have a backlash on one part of your business segment that, um, frankly, isn't as important as other parts in some ways, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there's an incentive here, I think, to be uh, a little bit forward-leaning and trying to avoid any of that kind of uh, backlash from the sustainability side of things. Yeah. So, um and, and I take your point on oil demand growing in both instances, but RTS scenario has less oil demand overall than the CTS right. scenario. So what I, I find interesting is in the sort of context of the peak oil demand debate, right, petrochemicals, you're right, is the thing that holds strong, That's but right. it's not like it doesn't incur pressure, right? There's not like there, there isn't sort of the same things that are driving all of the things, you know, on peak oil demand not affecting petrochemicals. So you ended on policy. I want to get back to some of the mechanics in the middle in a second before we open it up for conversation. But um, when I think about, say, the policy environment for driving renewable energy and electricity production or for uh, low carbon electricity production and those sorts of things, I can think about how mature that policy environment is. When I think about petrochemicals and sort of the RTS portfolio uh, that uh, uh, scenario, or sorry, the CTS scenario that you put out there, and then you talked about some of your policy recommendations, I really don't have a sense of how developed that policy environment is. How, I mean, is like what level of maturity should we think about um, uh, with regard to, to policymakers thinking about sustainability within this sector? So the, 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 the short answer in some ways, and this goes back to why this is a blind spot and one that's underappreciated, it's underappreciated by policymakers as well, and it's complicated. This is not a simple, uh, a simple environment. We rarely say there's a silver bullet. In fact, most times when you're giving a list of some kind of policy recommendations, you say there's not a silver bullet. In this instance, it's um, maybe even doubly or triply true. And it's very complicated markets. It's different for the different feedstocks. It's different for the other kinds of uh, pieces that feed into it. So um, it's very challenging for 
uh, policymakers, I think, to get their hands around the full equation. And a lot of times they're probably not looking at petrochemicals and let me get my hands around that. They're looking at plastics or they're looking at a part of it um, to, to be a little bit along those lines. So there's a lack, and this is part of one of the reasons we did this report, is the, it, there is an audience here of uh, regulators, um, policymakers, market designers to say, hey, maybe you should think um, or look at the lens of the petrochemicals industry as a whole, um, thinking through these various components, uh, components of it in that way. Um, within some of the subcomponents, so if you look at the, ten, uh, the list of 10, there are certain parts of the world, different countries, different regions that are a little bit further along maybe more aggressive, European Union on plastics recycling being a little bit more forward-leaning, a little bit more uh, further along and thinking through those kinds of, uh, kinds of equations. But overall, um, there's a lot, maybe put it this way, there's a lot of growth opportunity. There's a lot of improvement for uh, further uh, thoughtful uh, policymaking in this space. Okay, all right, two kind of technical questions and then I wanna let uh, your colleagues here ask you some of their own questions. You said that the CTS scenario is broadly made up of existing technologies that are cost-effective, but they do require policy design. But a third of that came from CCUS? That's right. So let me uh, see if I can just flip this back. Over a third, 35 percent. So let me just put that up there. <laughs> this is when you, like, regret animating your slides. <laughs> So a full third, uh, over a third, 35 percent. And so um, I guess my assumption was that I, I don't know as much on the carbon capture utilization breakout of that number, but on the CCS side, CCS and petrochemicals, it's hard to argue absent a carbon price that that would be cost effective. So, so is that the policy design that you're talking about? So um, this graph's even more striking striking on that instance. Yeah. So it really is. It's the storage piece. And the storage piece won't happen unless you have some kind of uh, incentive structure. <laughs> Could be a price per se. Um, certainly incentive structures like 45Q here in the U.S. There's other ways to incent and encourage um, those kinds of pieces. But um, left to itself, um, without that kind of signal, you'll just get the light blue maybe a little bit, side. but you won't get significant amounts of it. It really requires policy to drive and take advantage of that 35 percent. Okay. Again, this is a cost-optimized model. So what we what we show is, um, if you want to do this as cost-effectively as you can, here's how you get 35 percent of that. But it will require actually paying something to uh, to actually generate. Okay. And then, so my last question, technical question on the CTS scenario is, you have savings that come from recycling that are generally based on the feedstock, right? So is there a loss on the energy side of the equation for recycling? What, like, what are the energy inputs into reuse, and are those taken into account when you're doing these scenarios? So, um, yes, and um, I'm not sure. I'd they must to, not be terribly sick. I, I, well, I that's what I was just report, thinking, and I'd have to ask our, um, I should have mentioned this at the outset. So the two colleagues who uh, spent the most time on this, yes. some of you may know, uh, Araceli Fernandez, who's the head of our industry um, group at the IA, terrific colleague, and then the other colleague, uh, Peter Levi, um, the two of them were the heart and soul of this report. Others of us go and speak about the report. Um, they, <laughs> did all, <laughs> yeah, they did all the, uh, the terrific analysis and really did a phenomenal job uh, on this one of the very complicated uh, subject matter. 
So I'm not sure where it feeds into it, but it, I think your assumption's right. It's not that significant, certainly um, compared to the um, avoided production. Avoided production, yeah, okay, yeah. great, all right. Well, uh, I'm gonna open it up to your questions. Please wait for the microphone, state your name and affiliation question in the form of a question, and uh, we'll get as many of you in as possible. We'll start with Jan, and then we're just gonna go right down the line here. All right, I'm, I'm Jan Maris at Resources for the Future. Is there a reason that you all don't specifically talk about a price in carbon? And maybe you've got a policy that you can't recommend it, because that's the clear elephant in the room. And in fact, that's why the petrochemical industry and the chemical industry have expanded over 50 years. They looked at all the products with which they might compete and the prices thereof and figure out how to make a competitive product cheaper. So a price on carbon would make an enormous difference for this industry, and they can solve the problem. This actually might work together with it, Sarah. Okay. Uh, Reed Detchen with the United Nations Foundation. Um, I think this feeds into what Jan was asking. Uh, riff for a little bit for me, Dave, on the future of plastics in particular in a highly carbon-constrained environment. Uh, very high carbon price, uh, aiming at a you know, 80 or 100% reduction in carbon across the economy in 2050. One thing that, that uh, occurs to me is you have to obviously consider the life cycle profile of the alternatives. So we've all seen the paper versus plastic debates. And often plastic works out better uh, on, a life, on a life cycle analysis. Uh, and uh, add into that uh, the, the virtue or lack thereof of biodegradable plastics and think how to think about plastics the way people are starting to think about lumber uh, in long-lived uses like building materials and what kind of plastics fit that, how big a share of the market that is. So in a highly carbon-constrained environment, what happens to plastics generally? So, uh, so excellent questions. Jan, to answer your question, so, um, Number three there, um, pursue effective efforts to reduce CO2 emissions. Certainly if you're looking at it from an economist perspective, uh, it's the carbon tax or some kind of trading mechanism or other kinds of things. So um, that is built into the assumptions when we drive the models um, under the CTS, is looking at some kind of carbon. Do you mean, oh, you're just asking whether he can spe specify what policy? No, I don't think. But if you can say it, why don't you? No, I mean, we at the IEA try to call it like we see it. It's not for us to dictate what countries should do. There's political constraints, all those kinds of things. But that's why we, um, you know, um, with uh, recommendation number three along those lines, I think we're pretty clear in our other modeling assumptions, whether it's the, the WEO sustainable development scenario, the carbon price that's embedded within that to drive those kinds of changes to reach those objectives, whether they're Paris Agreement objectives, uh, or otherwise. So I think we're, we, we try to be uh, pretty straightforward about those kinds of things. And again, as we were talking about, 
Um, you don't get from the reference case to the CTS, the clean technology scenario in this instance or similarly with other bits of our analysis, unless you have mechanisms that drive um, that, drive that. the carbon tax, of course, being, uh, being one of them. So, Reed, um, to your question, what do plastics look like in a carbon-constrained environment? Um, in many ways, that's the CTS. So the CTS is a very carbon-constrained environment. So the CTS is uh, very much in line with and built off of our uh, WEO sustainable development scenario. So that's our uh, Paris-compliant, well below two scenario that achieves the Paris Agreement objectives. It also uh, reduces air pollution and brings energy access as well. It's a more integrated look at what's going forward. Um, but that is a, uh, a very near-term uh, peak on global CO2 emissions from the energy sector and then a very significant reduction uh, thereafter. So the CTS numbers really um, show, um, certainly compared to transport, compared to a lot of other areas, plastics ends up um, doing better, if you will, than a lot of other areas, uh, in part because of their flexibility and utility including for a lot of clean uh, technology um, uh, applications or technologies into the future. So solar PV obviously has a lot of silicon. It has a number of other um, things built into it, but plastics are one of the components uh, for a lot of the lightweighting of vehicles, plastics, lightweighting of uh, other kinds of things along those lines. So um, the future in a carbon-constrained world, it's less overall amounts of plastics or feedstocks as we were just talking about, but it's significantly higher and even a higher percentage, that 26 percent compared to that 18 percent. Um, it's a higher percentage of overall oil demand um, coming from that area in a carbon-constrained environment. Now, um, uh, our companies, our policymakers, our R&D folks fully looking at the range of ways to get the most out of the plastics as feedstocks and the energy um, in order to um, take advantage. No, that's part of the reasons we put out this report was to encourage some of that R&D and other kinds of analysis. Um, I think your point on life cycle analysis is exactly right in what we should be thinking about, whether it's plastics or wood or other kinds of things. What is the emissions profile? How, um, how many years do those uh, carbon um, molecules get locked up in plastics um, for different products? When do those get released over a period of time or some stored um, in, in terms of longer and comparing that to different other products, uh, uh, other products out there on those lines? But given plastics versatility, given its importance for a lot of these clean uh, energy technologies, it seems like it will um, play a significant um, and maybe even an enhanced role percentage terms in a carbon-constrained world. Good morning. My name is uh, Warren Wilczewski. I'm from the Energy Information Administration. And actually, uh, I'll just note a particular absence of DOE and EIA references in your report. Uh, and I note that because um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but at EIA, we've embarked on this, what we call hydrocarbon gas liquids effort. And that started up in 2012 because we had already recognized that there was a blind spot in the way that uh, energy is looked at in the absence of the petrochemical industry. So, so, you know, under hydrocarbon gas liquids, we're looking at both the natural gas liquids, so, you know, ethane, propane, butanes, natural gasoline, and then we're also looking at the ethylene, propylene, butylenes. So we've attempted to tabulate these numbers in a very particular methodological, method, methodological way, 
uh, precisely because, right, while we are the Energy Information Administration, we recognize that a significant quantity of these materials goes right into the petrochemical industry. So um, my question is, you know, you, you've built up a, a tremendous model, right, a, a great analytical framework for looking at the petrochemical industry, but uh, without really getting a good handle on the underlying data, I don't think that it's possible to actually make the kinds of uh, outlooks that, 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 that you're attempting to, 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 pr to produce, right? So how is IEA going to tackle the data blind spot? Because without the good data, right, you really can't, good, can't create good analysis. Is EIA's a global HGL database or is it just for the United States? So on a global basis, a lot of our data comes from IEA. And you know, I'm sorry not to you know, poo-poo your efforts, but uh, we have found IEA data to be sorely lacking. But what's yours? So what we do is we take IEA data, and for a number of countries, we actually modify the numbers that we get from IEA so that we can get something that's a little bit more reasonable in terms of what we would expect to be occurring and in a particular country. what's EIA's country. Or, or like organically generated data so, on HGLs? Is so, it just for the United States? Because I know you guys have had a big push on that for a while. Yeah, so we have, we have international data, right? And we publish that, and what, right now what we have is we have ethane and we have LPG, mm -hmm. right? We're not able to get a good handle on what's coming out of the refineries in terms of ethylene or propylene outside of the United States. And as a result, we yeah. try to kind of steer away from that. So that's probably going to be into our other oils category. Uh -huh. uh, but when we do our modeling, uh, we take the data that we have corrected, and then we apply better analyst knowledge, and then we create forecasts for the international demand. And one of the things that we work on, aside from just the consumption of feedstocks, is we actually try to estimate how much carbon is, you know, quote unquote, sequestered in plastics. Mm -hmm. Right, because as you had mentioned, right, the carbon intensity of the petrochemical industry is lower than it is, for example, for, for steel, precisely because a lot of that feedstock ends up as part of the output. Right? So that's you know, sequestered in, in, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, in EIA lingo, I guess, and DOE in general. So it sounds so. like both EIA and IEA have uh, at least an assertion that both have problems getting good data on the petrochemical side. So what is that? Uh, we, we've, you know, this has been good energy data over the history of uh, IEA and EIAs have been a long, a long tail. Is there, are there efforts to try and collect more uh, that at a more granular level? So uh, a, a few thoughts. First, as a DOE alumni, um, certainly very strong appreciation of our EIA colleagues, all the um, phenomenal work that you all do, not only um, with U.S. data, of course, but um, global data as well. And I think there's been a uh, very long-standing partnership between IEA and EIA, as there should be, um, to try to make sure that we all have the best data. Um, secondly, certainly as you know, and I think everybody appreciates, but maybe says it, but doesn't always fully internalize it or appreciate it, everything depends on the data, right? Like if you start off with bad numbers, your analysis is only gonna be uh, flawed. So it's the foundation that starts on everything, and it's why we spend a lot of time from the IEA side of, of things. Third, um, there aren't great data for some of these pieces out there right now, and will need to be continually improved um, in terms of, uh, of what we get, not only from our member countries, the US of course being a founding member and key member country for the IEA, 
Um, but increasingly for us, um, working as I showed you on the map at the very front end with the Chinas and Indias, the other major emerging economies, the other major sources of uh, different energy use, production, et cetera, to get better and better data so that we all can have the best global data we possibly can. And I think on the petrochemical space, along with a number of other areas, we need to keep working on those efforts. So um, I know our chief statistician, Duncan Millard, was out not too long ago meeting with you all, and we'll look to continue, uh, continue improving that. But there's, I guess the way I'd think about it is, um, try to get the best data you can, try to always improve that data, but um, certainly for us with petrochemicals or elsewhere, you can't wait for the perfect data to do any analysis. You know what I mean? You've got to keep working on improving your data while you try to do analysis with the data that you have with the caveats associated with it and continuing to improve it. So that's, that's where we're at is trying to continue to improve it. Great. Other questions? We've got Paula and then here and then we'll go back to Reed. Thanks, Sarah. And Dave, I'll echo, echo Sarah's uh, rave reviews for the Blind Spot series. I think it's really important and done in a way only that only IEA can do. Um, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit more about the existing technologies that are embedded in the CTS that are, that are envisioned to be deployed. But also, I know y'all are doing parallel work on digitization and other clean tech investments. What are some sparkly things in, the, in your sort of field of vision that you think could also intersect to enable the CTS scenario that y'all set out? And we'll go right here. Uh, Ad Hamizia, um, Oxford University and also uh, government advisor in the Gulf particularly. Um, a, a question of a slightly sh more short-term horizon. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how some of the large industrial conglomerates, the SABIC, Cetel, um, how, how they are sort of managing the sort of in energy pricing reform situation and how it's affected their competitiveness, particularly in Amina. Thank you. Keeping in mind the acquisition that's come upcoming. And Reed Detchen again. Um, in your clean technology scenario, it seemed like you had a relatively small role for biomass. Uh, and I'm wondering about uh, the high carbon price scenario. Wouldn't it be true that uh, bio-based plastics uh, that are then uh, put into permanent kind of plastic products would in effect be a negative emission strategy? All right, so let's take, uh, take all of those. Um, first, Paula, to your question on the, on the technologies side of things, especially digitalization. So when we do our, our modeling assumptions, and, and similar to, to, to this in the CTS, although um, comparable to other, um, our WEO sustainable development scenario, our two degree scenarios, et cetera, um, we don't try to include some kind of crazy breakthrough that may or may not happen very difficult for those who are modelers to try to incorporate that kind of kind of thing. So I think any modeling exercise has a bit of a caveat in that you could, if you do the right investments, RPE, other kinds of things along those lines, you could get some real breakthroughs that mix things up, disrupt things in quite um, significant kinds of ways that are very difficult to capture in a modeling uh, exercise. So what we what we capture in this scenario is Existing technology, some cost reductions, right? The world's not static, but not any kind of significant um, breakthroughs that may or may not uh, may or may not happen uh, going forward. 
one of the most interesting parts of that, and you referenced uh, this, is on the digitalization front. What do the various ICT technologies bring to the equation, including in this petrochemical space, but more broadly into the energy space more generally? So we did a, uh, a big effort a year ago um, trying to work with analysts across the IA on a digitalization and energy um, overview. Uh, really trying to figure out where are the gains happening, where are there interesting things already happening in digitalization and energy on efficiency, predictive maintenance, artificial intelligence, et cetera, and then where does the future go? And um, having spent a lot of time on that, I'm helping to co-lead that effort with a colleague of mine, Laura Coetzee, from the WIO team, it's very, very difficult to um, discern where things are headed on that digitalization and energy space beyond the next few year period of time or five year period of time. There's a lot of ways the technology um, intersects with human behavior and social, uh, um, what incentive structures you have could be huge rebound effects for autonomous vehicles or other kinds of things that you might think would have an otherwise um, um, positive reduction in energy consumption along those lines. So I think this is a fascinating area to explore further, including in the, uh, in the uh, petrochemical space, which I think the petrochemicals and digitalization and what does that mean in terms of um, different opportunities going forward. Sort of to your, um, to, to your question, um, Reed, earlier in your current question, I think there's an interesting bit of analysis uh, on that front. To your broader question on, on negative emissions, are there some smart ways to not only think about reducing the CO2 footprint but really driving it? Uh, absolutely. So um, one thing I referenced was on bioenergy more generally, we had that be the major focus of our renewables report that comes out on an annual basis really trying to uh, figure out a variety of really interesting opportunities. Again, thinking of it on a life cycle basis, when you look at bioenergy more generally, biomass, you need to figure out the sustainability part of it. Do you have enough land? Do you have enough of the resources, the fertilizers, other kinds of things to really drive those pieces? But um, strikes me that's a really interesting follow-on piece here. We didn't get into that as much as we would have liked to, certainly in this report, but to really think about bio-based plastics, other kinds of mechanisms, not only reducing the footprint, but potentially even being a net, um, a net uh, sink, if you will, on the, on the CO2 side of things. And then um, finally, just on the uh, energy pricing reform. So it's a dynamic environment more generally right now. Of course, on the oil side, you've got high oil prices, um, which is a significant part. My boss, Fatih Birol, was just in uh, London uh, speaking about this and speaking about how we're in a uh, a red zone in the Q4 time period where unless we have some additional production coming online, that's throwing a variety of incentive structures um, in very challenging places around the world. It's um, putting some of the progress we've seen on reducing inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, putting some real pressure on that from a domestic uh, perspective, from a producer economy side of things. One um, special report, it's actually going to be a standalone report that my WIO colleagues are working on right now, is looking at producer economies uh, in particular and looking at a variety of scenarios going forward about um, how to diversify, how to make sure that they don't get caught in some of the volatility. It's a really interesting piece of analysis will come out in November um, and hopefully be helpful um, to help the producer economies think through their strategies going forward. Well, we thank you very much, Dave, for coming and presenting the Future Petrochemicals Report. I'm sure everyone should download it and take a look. It's got a lot of really good information in it. But um, as we've talked about today, I think it's really one of those areas where a lot more work can be done. So uh, we look forward to that as well. Would you please join me in thanking Dave for being with us today?